0: This episode of the Pellicle podcast is sponsored by Hand and Heart. Hand and Heart is a business and workplace consultancy. We educate people, we solve problems, we guide growth, and we nurture teams. We believe the workplace will transform over the next five years. We have experience with businesses of every shape, size, and industry. We've worked with over 80 businesses in the last five years, and we've educated over 250 owners and employees using our business ecosystem model. By keeping things digital, we keep it affordable, and we are available worldwide on your time. We're giving Pellicle listeners a free 30-minute advice session. You could be a business owner wondering what the hell DEI means, or you're at a loss of how to even start your business or develop systems to improve your business. We can help you. To sign up, head to www.handandheart.eu forward slash pellicle and register. That's www.handandheart.eu forward slash pellicle to book your free session. Thank you for listening. Now enjoy the show. Mm
1: Hello, welcome back to the Pellicle podcast. As ever, I'm your host, Matthew Curtis. Today, I'm going to be exploring a subject I've thought about a lot. It's the subject of brewery buyouts, but I'm not going to talk about the semantics of business and financial transactions. I want to explore why we have emotional responses to these business transactions, something that seems irrational some people say these feelings are irrational but i experience them and i certainly don't feel irrational when i think these things and i'm going to explore this through the lens of a particular brewery sale the sale of colorado's new belgium brewing to lion at the end of 2019 but we'll get to that later on in the show first a bit of housekeeping and then we're going to check in as we like to do on this podcast So first of all, you've got one more opportunity to email me a question for a forthcoming Q&A episode, which I will publish in January. So if you want to ask me a question about beer, or cider, or this podcast, or my book Modern British Beer, or anything to do with Pellicle, email me at matthew at pelliclemag.com. Thank you to the people who have already sent me questions. There's some really good ones. Everyone who sent me a question so far will get them answered on the show. So I look forward to recording that in a few weeks time. But do email me your question. It's Matthew at PellicleMag.com. And regular listeners of the show will notice that we have a new sponsor. I'd like to welcome Hand and Heart as our new podcast sponsor. And I'm really excited to have them on because it's a business that aligns with our own Values. You may have heard me mention Hand and Heart before because they produced a really important documentary podcast called Super Cool Toxic Workplace about the accusations of toxic workplace culture and sexual harassment at the Danish brewery, McKella. It's a must listen. But they're not just a podcast producing company, they're also a company that works in the field of DEI or diversity, equity and inclusion. There's a great offer there for businesses, beer centric businesses. I know a lot of business owners listen to this podcast and there's a great opportunity to have a 30 minute free consultancy as you heard in the offer. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes of every episode they sponsor as well. So do check that out if investing in DEI is important to your company, which it should be. It should be to everyone. Thanks again to Kate Bailey and to Hand and Heart for being our new sponsor. I'm really, really happy to have you on board. Anyway, let's have a chat about what's going on out there. I've just been listening back to a few older podcast episodes. It's been about a year since I switched it out to this format where I just talk. In fact, I was recently interviewed by Andy Crouch for the Beer Edge podcast, which will be out soon. And he asked me, How I record these episodes, do I just turn the mic on and talk? In a sense, yes, but what you are listening to is not everything I record. If I'm doing my job properly and editing this podcast right, then it's going to sound seamless, hopefully. But I can tell you behind the scenes, there are multiple takes and mistakes that I try and edit out as well as I can. But I do appreciate that people are listening and thinking, hey, I just turn on the mic and talk. That means I'm doing something right. So check out that podcast soon. But one thing that was thematic in these episodes a year ago is that COVID was very scary. The pandemic was challenging. And we're kind of going back to that situation again. And I wanted to say that, you know, a lot of hospitality businesses are asking for and need your support at the moment. But no one should feel pressured or guilt-tripped into going out into spaces they don't feel safe. I've certainly started to... Reconsider a few busier pubs now because I really want to spend Christmas with my family and I do test myself every couple of days with a lateral flow test. And if I get that positive result now, a few days before Christmas, it means I'm probably not going to get to spend it with my family. So I'm starting to be a lot more careful in that regard. Get out there and support people where you feel safe. Keep wearing your masks. Get your boosters. I've got mine booked in for a couple of weeks time. Fingers crossed things will settle down in the new year. Something else that came up in one of those previous episodes was I I don't really want to get into it, but I think the notion of checking in means I shouldn't ignore it. A year ago, I was up for some awards and I didn't win them. And I talked a bit about that on the podcast. And do you know what? The same thing happened again. Very important beer awards. I had five nominations, but I didn't win any of them. So I think I just want to air that it really was difficult for me to work through. But it's two weeks on, and I'm feeling a lot better. I'm proud of my work and the work I do, and I've got lots of work to get on with in 2022. So don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. It's never nice to get so close to winning something and then not getting it. But onwards. Anyway, let's get on with the rest of the show. I recently wrote On the subject of going out, I wrote an article about the anxiety I experienced going to a beer festival. It's called I Don't Think I'm Ready Yet, and you can read that on the Pellicle site, and that was based on an experience of going to a beer festival with about 2,000 people. But some of you may have noticed that I have been getting out there, and in particular, I just travelled to the United States for two weeks. A little bit of background on that for those who haven't listened to this podcast regularly on why I went to the US and why the US is important to me. And this ties into why I'm going to be talking about this particular buyout with New Belgium and Lion, and why it's been difficult for me to work through. But we need to rewind quite a bit. So before I wrote about beer, my dad in 2010, my dad's called Frank, He got a job in a town called Fort Collins in the state of Colorado in the US. And he was meant to be out there for three years, but it's 11 years on. He's retired out there. He has actually become a US citizen this year. So this is where he lives his life. But as well as it changing his life when he went out to take a job over there, the first time I visited Fort Collins, it changed my life because it was when I first saw beer in a way that made me want to write about it, which would eventually become my career. You know, this is what I do for a full time job, not just this podcast, but my writing and my photography. So Fort Collins was an important place to me from the first time I visited in July 2010. But because my dad lived there, I would visit about twice a year. Over the years, it ceased to be this place that I just visited and had a wonderful time. It became a home from home, a second home. I made friends there who I would catch up with on subsequent visits. I became very attached to this place. In fact, it feels like a little piece of myself exists in Fort Collins. And every so often I like to go in and check in on it. It's really important for me to take these trips out there. I had a trip booked in April 2020. In fact, the trip would have been a mixture of business and pleasure. I was going to go to the Craft Brewers Conference in San Antonio in Texas, and I was really looking forward to that. Because afterwards, I had booked a long weekend in Austin, and I was going to visit Jester King Brewery, and then I was going to eat and drink my way around Austin. And I was so looking forward to it. But a few weeks before I was meant to go, and right up until the last minute I was determined to go, despite what was happening with the pandemic, I thought I'd still be able to do it. But then I got COVID, and while I was ill in my bed for two weeks, the world closed down. And one of the other things that closed was the US-UK border. Now, my dad was quite fortunate because he had this dual nationality. So it wasn't like I wasn't able to see my dad. He was able to travel back and forth, which he did a couple of times when things weren't too crazy. But I was not able to make the trip over myself. UK citizens were not permitted to travel across the US border despite having a close relative living there which was very challenging for me I missed not just visiting my dad but I couldn't see my friends and this place like I said that this little part of me exists and as the months of the pandemic dragged on I began to convince myself that I would perhaps never visit Fort Collins ever again it started to feel like a place that almost didn't exist would I ever have a sandwich from Choice City Would I ever have another beer in the mayor of Old Town or at the Odell taproom? I started to think perhaps not, but towards the end of this year, when they announced that they would be opening the border, my reaction was immediate. Even before they announced the date, I instinctively started looking at flights and booked a flight from London to Denver like a knee-jerk reaction, without thinking about all the hurdles I would have to jump through, like getting my vaccine certificates, getting a negative test within 72 hours before the flight. I just booked it. Actually, getting all that stuff done was immensely stressful because I had this fear that if I got one thing wrong, I would turn up at the airport and they would say, sorry, you can't get on the plane. And that's all I could think about. So I was really worried. And up until the moment... My boarding pass was placed in my hand. I was convinced that I was not going to this place, that I would not get to spend time in this wonderful town that I love visiting and see the wonderful people there who I miss dearly. But I turned up at the airport. I had my COVID certificate in an app on my phone. Someone looked at it for less than half a second, said, "Yep, yeah, you're fine. And then I was off to the check-in counter And it was when that boarding pass was put in my hand, I felt this rush of emotion. I was practically in tears as I was lining up in security. I was going to America. Oh my God, it was surreal. So I had to calm myself down with a couple of pints and then face the fact that I'm a nervous flyer and I was about to get on a nine hour flight. Thankfully, it was relatively smooth. What I was expecting when I got to Fort Collins was everything to feel new and fresh and a little bit weird and a little bit different. But that's not what happened at all. I woke up in the morning, as I planned to, to go on my run in this glorious Colorado sunshine. It was minus four. But it's all right. I wanted to go on this run, so I wrapped myself up in my thermals. I went out to look at the foothills and have a wander around town. And it was there. It was the same as ever. And then I went to my favourite sandwich place, Choice City Butcher and Deli. And I had a cheesesteak sandwich and a pint of Bell's Two-Hearted. And this is interesting because Bells have just been acquired by Lion as well. So they are part of the same company as New Belgium is, as we'll discuss later on. But this pint was sublime. Two-Hearted is one of the best beers in the world, if you like American IPAs, because it's really malt forward, really citrusy, and then really bitter. No element takes over from any of the others. It's a sensational beer. It was so grounding for me in that moment. I was there, and it felt normal. And that was a good thing. And so I spent two weeks in the US with my dad and his partner and their dogs. We went up into the Rocky Mountains for five days. We visited Gunnison. We visited Crested Butte. We stopped at some breweries on the way, like Elevation and Outer Range. And I saw some of the most incredible scenery I've ever seen in my life. If you go to my Instagram, which is at Total Curtis, you can have a look at some photos of mountains mixed in with photos of pints and stainless steel tanks in breweries, because that's what I like taking photos of. It was great. But it also afforded me the opportunity to finally, hopefully get closure on something that I hadn't been able to reconcile. Maybe it was because of the pandemic. Maybe it's because I wasn't able to make these trips. But when New Belgium decided to sell to Lion, I really struggled with the idea of it. And I write about beer professionally, as I said. I've written about these takeovers. I've reconciled many in the UK and the US, but for some reason I found myself not able to close the loop on my thoughts with this sale. I needed to go to the brewery. I needed to sit there and have a pint of beer, talk to my friends that work there, and try and get to the bottom of why I don't feel right about this sale, why I can't just get on with it. I still haven't got there. And so this is my last ditch attempt. This podcast, I'm going to try and get my thoughts in order based on everything I've amassed and try and work out why this sale gives me this almost irrational, emotional response. But you know what? It's not irrational at all. It's perfectly rational to be invested in something and then feel uncomfortable when it changes. So let's sit with that change. Let's try and figure out why the New Belgium sale To Lion has made me react in this way. To understand how I feel about brewery buyouts, before we talk about New Belgium, I have to rewind very briefly. Brewery acquisitions have always existed for as long as brewing has been a capitalist venture. If you look at the 60s and 70s and the acquisition of the family brewers around the UK by what's called the Big Six, I talk about that in brief in my book, Modern British Beer. Acquisitions are not a new thing, it's important to say, but there have been a lot in the brief time I've been writing about beer, the last 10 years. The first acquisition that was really on my radar that made me think about how this might affect the industry was in 2011. And that was the sale of Goose Island Brewery to Anheuser-Busch InBev, AB InBev for short, the largest brewing company in the world. And I wasn't writing about beer then, but I was a beer enthusiast. And I would always pick up a couple of bottles of Goose Island IPA from a local off-licence on my way home in North London and really enjoy it. And I watched as Goose Island changed very dramatically over the years. I don't feel the same attachment to Goose Island that I do to New Belgium, as I will explain, but it's a very good example of how a brand selling out has caused it to become essentially completely different to the original idea, despite arguments to the contrary. I'm not going to argue about that now. Maybe that's something you can send in for the Q&A episode, but more recently there have been particular UK acquisitions that I had a large focus on because I was writing about beer. The first of these was the sale of Camden Town Brewery in 2015, also to AB InBev. This affected me way more profoundly than other acquisitions had in the past, because this was where I drank every Friday night. I drank with the brewers and the staff there. I knew everyone there and I wrote about them. I loved their beers and they had sold out just after crowdfunding as well, over a thousand investors who wanted to be a part of this business. A great return for those investors within six months. Unprecedented, you might say. But immediately, things started to change there. And I was very critical of the process. At the time, I had this emotional response and I was riding that and everything that came out in my reporting, this disappointment, was based on not a rational, business-like thought pattern, but on how I felt deep down about this sale and how uncomfortable it made me. Similarly, in 2018, another brewery I was a huge fan of and very invested in and had done some work for in the form of doing talks at their extravaganza beer festival was Beavertown, who sold 49% of their business to Heineken. Again, I had an overwhelming emotional response, but that situation was different for me because I had a professional commitment to do talks a few months later after the sale, which I at the time decided to honor because, you know, I signed a contract to do this work and I wasn't going to abandon that. And I did. And it was fucking weird. But afterwards, I started to develop my thoughts on that sale. And I think actually... The situation I was in there made me think about it a bit more pragmatically rather than emotionally. Although later on I definitely worked through some emotion. Although if I look back at those two sales now, particularly Camden Town, it was the point all along. This is what they were aiming for. This was the plan. Was I naive to invest myself emotionally in these breweries? Perhaps? No. I don't think I was. Something that's really important to me is that I'm an enthusiast first. Beer is something I love and that will always come before being a writer, even though beer is my profession. And this is because if I don't have that enthusiasm, that passion for beer, then I'm not going to be able to write about it for the rest of my life as I intend. So keeping that boundary there is really important. I don't want to walk into a pub to have a pint after finishing work and start thinking about it in a business sense or a work sense. I want to enjoy that pint. So the reason I react emotionally to these deals is because I will not relinquish that enthusiasm. That's so important to me. And that's why I react emotionally to these brewery sales. But let's get on to New Belgium and why this in particular has been challenging for me to work through. And I think I really have to rewind to my early trips to Fort Collins. This is why I talked about that earlier, because this all ties in to that emotional response. You know, when I first started visiting Fort Collins, New Belgium was kind of like this theme park. It wasn't like this warm place. You'd go and sit and have a pint and relax. That was Odell. Odell was the tap room to go to. And you know what? It still is. But New Belgium, you would go to do the tour because the brewery is huge and eclectic. There's the wood cellar with these 64 massive fooders full of sour beer and this amazing brew house built into a room that looks like a Belgian abbey. And at the end, they make you go down a slide. I've actually done that tour four times. And as I've got to know people at New Belgium, I've got to have private tours of the wood cellar and taste through the fooders and try new beers, pull a Fat Tire, the flagship beer of New Belgium, straight off the canning line and drink it fresh and tasting that dry hop before it disappears, which sadly it does very quickly. Fat Tire tastes very different when you drink it in Fort Collins than it does when you drink it anywhere else in the world, which is why people will tell you it's pretty average, except people who drink it in Fort Collins will tell you it's really good. I'm a big fan of it. But something in New Belgium that changed over the years I visited was the visitor centre, which they have called the Mothership. They call it the Liquid Centre. That became a community taproom space. Having it set up like a theme park with these tours wasn't quite working. They needed to win Fort Collins over, not just people who were visiting. They wanted the people who live there to go and spend an afternoon there. Get some food from the food truck, meet friends, have a few beers, drink something familiar, drink something new. And that's what they did. They redeveloped this space to become an absolutely incredible tap room. New Belgium, which was this national brand distributed in every state by this point, was also becoming the heart of community in Fort Collins. And I became deeply enamoured with New Belgium, particularly two of its beers, Fat Tyre, which is its flagship American Amber. It's actually based on a Belgian special, like a Belgian pale ale. But I love going to Fort Collins and drinking pints of this and relaxing. And the other beer that I became enamoured with was La Folie, their sour brown ale. And this is a really important beer because New Belgium essentially pioneered wood-aging and wild and sour beers in the United States. They were one of the first to do it, and certainly the first to do it on scale. And they also introduced the famous barrel PH1 into beer which was the barrel that started their sour program which they gave to Vinnie Salerzo at Russian River and started their sour program which went to the rare barrel in Berkeley California and became the start of their sour program and is now back home in Fort Collins at Purpose Brewing and Blending where Peter Buchart the former brewmaster at New Belgium now has his own little retirement project with his wife Frezi. so New Belgium they're part of the fabric of modern American beer culture. I would call them a legacy brand. They were founded in 1991. They're 30 years old. You know, in American craft beer terms, that's ancient. In terms of what they've built, they are a nationally recognised brand, but one that I developed a deep emotional attachment to, which was furthered when I met people who worked there who would become friends. I also had some professional connections with New Belgium, and I think it's really important to say that. I was hired to essentially escort them around the UK and show them some places when they were collaborating with Partisan as part of the Rainbow Project, and I held the first ever New Belgium event in the UK. I organised it. It was called Into the Wild, and it was a showcase of their sour beers with their master blender, Lauren Limbach, one of the coolest people in beer, as well as having one of the very best palettes. I got to hang out with her, drink sour beers, drink margaritas, further deepening this emotional attachment to this wonderful brewery. As much as I had this attachment and I saw them as this American icon, they were also a business and they were attempting to expand aggressively. And there was this point in American craft beer when everything seemed so rosy it was growing so quickly and many of these legacy breweries decided that the answer was to keep growing and like many of their peers new belgium decided to build a second flagship brewery on the east coast in the town of asheville in north carolina now i've not been to asheville but those who have tell me it's a lot like fort collins it supports independent businesses It doesn't support big commercial brands, it's kind of free-spirited, it loves arts and food and music. It sounds like somewhere I'd really like to visit, but it also sounds like the perfect place for New Belgium to expand. And expand they did. They spent millions and millions of dollars on building this second facility. I'm not going to quote the actual figure because I don't have it to hand and I don't want to misquote it. It's really important not to get stuff like that wrong. But it was many millions of dollars invested in building this brewery. Around the time it opened, that is when the growth of craft beer in the United States began to flatline. It's something that affected many legacy craft breweries. I think a good example to look at is Green Flash, which was a beloved brewery in California. If you look at Ballast Point, which sold to Constellation Brands for a billion dollars, that absolutely tanked and had to be resold for a fraction of the price. Craft beer as a venture, as something that was going to grow to be that big, had reached perhaps its peak, at least in this beer age. I don't know what the future holds, but that infinite double-digit growth was not infinite at all. It reached its conclusion. And what that left in the beer industry for these big breweries was a mountain of debt. Now, when you're a business in debt, you have to run the business very differently to how you would if you had cash in the bank. Everything is about trying to become profitable and pay that debt back. Every decision you make, every beer you brew is based on the bottom line. And that was the case for New Belgium. But New Belgium was a bit different to other beer businesses. It's another reason why I find myself so attached to it. New Belgium was employee owned. It ran an employee stock ownership program or an ESOP, which is something I'm very into. And it means that after you complete 12 months of employment, you become a shareholder in the business. They give you this sense of ownership. And you own shares in the brewery, so that could be worth something down the line. But that's not all New Belgium do. They also give their employees free bikes after that year of employment. Not just any old bike, a really, really expensive cruiser. And you will get more bikes the longer you work there. Part of this is to encourage employees to cycle to work and be more environmentally thoughtful. This is something really important to New Belgium. The facility in Fort Collins generates about 20% of its own electricity through both solar panels on the roof and the recapture of biogases such as methane. You'll see these big white bubble like structures at the brewery, and they are using spent materials to recapture gases like methane and turn a turbine. They're making their own electricity and not drawing it from the grid. It's another reason why I'm so enamored with them as a brewery. But as I said, New Belgium had built this massive new facility in North Carolina and the sales of flagship brands like Fat Tire and the sales of their specialty sour beers were not doing enough. I will say that New Belgium sales wise they do pretty well. They're seeing some growth in brands like Voodoo Ranger. I think Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA is the number one IPA in supermarkets in America. But when you're saddled with debt, that becomes challenging and as far as I'm aware New Belgium's CEO Kim Jordan who is one of the original founders had a choice she could have closed the brewery down saddled with debt or sold out at some point if you have debt the people you owe that money to will come and ask you to pay it back and you need to find a solution to do that and for many breweries this involves selling shares in the business this could be to a private investment company or a private equity company, or in many instances it could be to another brewery. And so in November 2019 they announced their sale of the brewery to Lion. At this point it's really important to me to explain to you who Lion are, or what Lion is. A lot of the reporting around The sale of this brewery will point to Lion's owner, which is Kirin, one of the largest beer brands in the world and based in Japan. And Kirin itself is owned by Mitsubishi, who I'm sure you've probably heard of. And something else that I'm going to mention briefly here, because I think it's important to include, is that Kirin has... Invested money in the Myanmar military, which has staged a coup and is responsible for the genocide of the Rohingya people in Myanmar. I'm not going to go into that now because that's way more complicated than a brewery buyout. But do read up on that. I'm not saying that if you buy a lion owned beer, you are investing in genocide, but it is a reason why you should consider where you spend your money. But coming back to Lion, so Lion is an Australian-based company. And although a lot of reporting around these sales will point to Japanese involvement, in my reporting on these deals, and I'm going to refer to two UK acquisitions by Lion in particular, that of 4 Pure in the UK and Magic Rock, also in the UK, up in Yorkshire. Now, when I reported on these sales, I was not speaking to anyone from Kirin or anyone in Japan involved in these deals. These transactions were being facilitated entirely by Lion itself. This was an Australian acquisition. The people I would meet and interview about these acquisitions were from Australia. This was not being directed by Kirin. Something that's really interesting, I'll add from a more business perspective, is that Kirin and Lion were heavily invested in dairy in Asia and Australia and New Zealand. This is a multi-billion pound dairy industry we're talking about. So they had to sell these dairy businesses, but when you make a sale like that, you have to reinvest that money. You can't just sit on the cash. And Kirin and Lion decided to invest this money in what they call craft beverage, essentially breweries, distilleries, and other similar companies. Lion have been making acquisitions for some time now. Quite famously, they are the owners of Little Creatures in Australia which is their flagship brand. In New Zealand they own Panhead. Also in Australia they recently acquired Stone and Wood, Two Birds and some other breweries. In fact their portfolio is growing and growing. As I said in the UK they have acquired both Magic Rock in Yorkshire and 4pure in London. They are building an empire of brands, a one stop solution for bars and hospitality in supermarkets one invoice rather than many with a plethora of brands, each one shutting out the opportunity for a small independent business to sell via those channels. This is one of the reasons why I'm very wary of their strategy. In 2019 they landed a golden egg in New Belgium. This legacy brand that needed to find a way of getting itself out of debt but was universally loved by so many people in its home nation. It was a strong brand. The work was already in place. Like I say, Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA is the best-selling IPA in grocery in the United States. That's mad. They landed a big one. And two years later, they added to that portfolio with another whopper. The Mighty Bells in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Another legacy brand, well-loved in the U.S., which has become part of the same company. This means that a sales rep will walk in from Lion or Lion Little World Beverages as they've rebranded themselves and say, hey, you want some IPA? You want some Fat Tire? I can do that on one invoice for you. That's three taps. We'll do a Voodoo Ranger. We'll do a Two-Hearted and we'll do a Fat Tire. Great. Maybe a Laffoli. Hey, I've got these other brands. Do you want a Little Creatures Pale Ale? That's three, four taps gone to the independents something that independents cannot compete with on price or ease of sale. Running a bar is difficult. Solutions like this make it a lot easier for bar owners which makes it a lot more difficult for independent breweries selling their beer. Looking at Lions' strategy in the UK and this is where a lot of my feeling comes from if you look at 4Pure and Magic Rock 4Pure in particular it was not long before The founders, Dan and Tom Lowe, who I know quite well, were basically shown the back door. This business that they built on the spirit of adventure, this brand, these great beers, were taken out of their control permanently. And now that brand has been changed. There is literally no trace of what they built there before. And I'm starting to see this at Magic Rock. The head brewer, Stuart Ross, He was there for ten years, pretty much since the brewery was founded and developed most of its original recipes, left the business to become the head brewer at Kirkstall in Leeds. That was a huge signal to me that things were changing. But the thing is with breweries like Magic Rock and Forpure, they're young, they're malleable, they have no real legacy other than among a handful of hardcore fans. In the mainstream, They are not particularly well known, so for Lion, here's an opportunity to shape brands that people will think are independent and craft and have this cool branding, but in reality it's owned by a large corporation. It's a pretty standard tactic. The difference with New Belgium and Bells, but we're going to focus on New Belgium here, is that it is not as malleable. The work has been done, it has legacy, it is known throughout the United States. Pretty much anyone who drinks beer knows what a fat tire is. Voodoo Ranger, as I said, is this hugely popular brand, especially among younger drinkers, millennials and Generation Z. So Lion do not have the ability to shape New Belgium, at least not yet, in the same way they do Magic Rock and 4Pure. But that doesn't alleviate my fears that this may happen. As I said, New Belgium was this employee-owned company. In the acquisition, immediately, these employees no longer had ownership of the company. People who'd been there for a long time would have had their shares cashed in. Some people will do very well out of it. The kind of nest egg that sets you up for life. That's great. I'm really happy for those people. Absolutely over the moon. But it means people coming into the business will not be given this ownership. How long is it before they say, hey, these bikes cost a few hundred or thousand dollars. Why are we giving them away for free? Companies like Lion don't generally tend to do that. They go, hey, there's a whole host of employee benefits. Why are we going to spend more money on them? Another perk that new Belgium employees get is after five years, you are sent on a sabbatical to Belgium to experience the same feeling that the founders did before they decided to set up a Belgian-style brewery in America, or at least a Belgian-influenced brewery. How long before that cost is seen as something that is not viable? Maybe I'm wrong. At the moment, those trips are still happening. I've got a friend who is about to come up to five years at New Belgium who is going to go to Belgium and hopefully come up to Manchester and we're going to hang out and that'll be wonderful. But I'm really wary of the strategy, especially now Bells has joined the fold as well. But perhaps the biggest example of my wariness is the introduction of New Belgium to the UK. Now, as I said earlier, I got to do a little event with New Belgium called Into the Wild, and at that we poured La and Litoir, the two flagship sour beers from its wood program. But that was kind of a one-off. It wasn't really an official launch. And I received a press release not too long after the Lion acquisition saying that Voodoo Ranger is coming to the UK. And I found it immensely disconcerting because nowhere in the press release were the words new or Belgium. Voodoo Ranger was the brand and this is the product that was launching. And then I was offered a sample of the product. Now, as we've established, I go to Fort Collins a lot and I'm quite familiar with Voodoo Ranger. Voodoo Ranger is a rotating series of IPAs of varying strengths and flavours, but they're all pretty strong. They're all pretty intense. And there's three Voodoo Ranger beers that are available year round. One is called Voodoo Ranger IPA, which is 7.4. And that's my favourite. It's a West Coast style IPA. And then at a similar ABV, there is Voodoo Ranger Juicy Haze, which essentially offers the same kind of beer. But instead of being clear and bitter, it's hazy and juicy. So there's something for everyone. And they also do the Imperial IPA, which is kind of like a hybrid East West Coast not too bitter, not too juicy, but also a very high ABV. So, why was I getting an announcement in the UK for Voodoo Ranger Juicy IPA at 5.4%? Oh, is this a new one? Maybe this is one of the limited releases they've released in the United States. I do a little research, go on the new Belgium website, where they keep a log of all the beers they've ever released. no. This is a recipe that has never been brewed by a New Belgium facility, either in Fort Collins or in Asheville. This is a completely new beer. This beer is not even being brewed at New Belgium. It's being brewed at Four pure for the UK market. I got some of this beer and I drank it and it tasted nice. It tasted like a Fourpure beer. They make very nice beer. But it did not taste like a New Belgium beer. And despite it not saying New Belgium in the press release, it does say it on the can. But who in the UK knows what New Belgium is or Voodoo Ranger is? There is another brand we've discussed earlier, Beaver Town, that's done very popular by putting skeletons on the can. So it's very easy for Lion to slide in another juicy 5.4 ABV beer with a skeleton on the can and put it on the shelves in Waitrose where it exists. Another interesting thing is that if you talk to some New Belgium employees in the US, they don't know this beer exists in the UK. It has been done entirely as a brand exercise by Lion using the facility at Forpure. So I refused to accept it as a New Belgian beer. And on my recent trip, this was when it clicked to me that things were changing and I'm right to be wary and I'm not being irrational by having an emotional response to the sale of this brewery because I went to the Liquid Centre, the New Belgium Room in Fort Collins, I sat down and my first beer was a Voodoo Ranger IPA. And you know what? I'm not surprised it's selling so well. It's delicious. It is precise. Flavours of melon and citrus and pine, perfectly balanced with a resinous bitter finish. This is a Fort Collins quality beer. A beer from one of the best beer brewing towns in the world. And I thought about the New Belgium Juicy IPA being sold in the UK and how its quality, although it was a very nice beer, just didn't stand up to the beers being served at New Belgium. And I pose that if you had a tap with that beer on in Fort Collins at 5.4% tasting like it does, people would not buy it. It would not be the number one seller in US grocery. Someone in an office has decided, hey, this is doing well in America. So let's just put this branding in a UK package, a UK ABV with flavors we think the market is ready for and it'll do fine. And hey, maybe it is doing fine, but it's not a new Belgian beer. And that creates such dissonance for me. And it demonstrates that the owners of the brand are willing to compromise its integrity in the name of pushing product and pushing sales. How long before... They look at other elements of the business that are underperforming and say, hey, let's apply that thinking to this. In my opinion, I don't think it will be too long. Hey, but I've thought about it long and hard. Despite all I've said, when I go back to Fort Collins, I will probably go to the new Belgian brewery and I will probably drink their beers for as long as they remain tasting as good as they do. For as long as they provide a place of employment where I know people have worked for 25 plus years. And those people have told me they're happy there and they are happy with the transition. And as long as things remain as they are, then I will drink their beer. But I'm right to be wary. I believe I'm right to be wary. Things change and that's okay. But the tactics of larger brewers to essentially control the market without looking like they're controlling the market by using craft brands. It's very worrying to me. If you consider that there's nearly 10,000 breweries in the United States and 2,000 in the UK, the majority of which are tiny, they're not going to be able to sell in their beer to places where the Lion portfolio rests. They won't be able to compete on price. From what I've tasted, they might struggle to compete on quality. It's a challenging time. As someone who is an enthusiast, as someone who is emotionally invested in beer, I want to invest in the underdog, I guess, in people who I think deserve that support. And that comes down to reconciling the original question, this emotional reaction. We have it because we are enthusiasts, because we are passionate about something we love. And if we see someone with a vastly increased resource and a portfolio based on a bottom line. Rather than brewing for quality or flavor, then I feel we're right to be worried and feel the way we feel about these acquisitions. If I go back to my earlier examples of Camden and Beavertown, let's focus on Beavertown specifically. They built a massive brewery with the money they got from Heineken in North London, and their beer is sold in Heineken's network of over 3,000 pubs, and they sell neck oil and gamma ray. And those beers taste nothing like the juicy, hazy, eccentric beers I drank four or five years ago. Those recipes were never designed to be brewed at that scale. But they're not the same recipes. It's as simple as that. And I'm wary of how this is being sold to the consumer at large, the people who are not the enthusiasts, and they're being told, this is craft beer, you've got it, this is the modern stuff and there's way better stuff out there. Now, as I said, New Belgium's beers, they taste fantastic. So, there's no reason for me to worry there yet. And I still have this emotional attachment that I don't think cutting the cord would be healthy, but I will remain forever wary of changes. And I will not support a brewery that focuses on the bottom line first and the beer second. That's the way I see it. I think it's fine to have these feelings. About brewery acquisitions. It's natural, it's human. I think this has helped. I think you should take the last half hour or so with a pinch of salt. This is just me expressing a feeling. It's that enthusiast I mentioned earlier, trying to figure out how to balance it with the writer, with the person that works in beer. If you love new Belgian beer, drink it. Drink what you enjoy. What I'm not doing here is policing what I think people should drink. Referring to my own book, when I talk about the broad spectrum of joy, that means that all beer exists on the spectrum, and you should drink what makes you happy more than ever at the moment, with things being so random and challenging out there. But I think it's important to keep a healthy wariness of the activities of big businesses and how they control the market, and that's where I'm at with that. So good luck to Lion and New Belgium. I won't drink your Voodoo Ranger made in the UK. There are much better hazy pale ales being made by small independents. But next time I'm in Fort Collins, I will absolutely go to the liquid centre and have a pint of Fat Tire because I'm forever emotionally connected to that beer. So please, please, don't fuck it up for me. Anyway, thank you for listening to that. That was almost like a therapy session. I think I worked through some feeling there. I think I figured a few things out. And if you felt emotionally involved with this brewery sale or any other brewery sale, I hope this helped you figure some stuff out too. Before I go, I just want to say a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. We can't produce this podcast or our website without your support. If you are able to support Pellicle, please consider giving us a monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash pellicle mag. We have got some big plans for 2022. We want to support our contributors more than ever. And we'll be announcing how we're going to do that soon. But if you can donate a little bit every month, it's patreon.com forward slash pellicle Right, I'll leave it there. I will be back in a couple of weeks sooner than normal with my annual episode celebrating my favorite beers, wines and ciders of the year. Until then, stay good, enjoy whatever beer you like, but do think about where that beer is coming from. I've been Matthew Curtis. You've been listening to The Pellicle Podcast. Bye-bye.